Hello, everyone, and welcome to Carbide Content. I'm David from Contraption Collection. I'm Dalen from MachineWise. And I'm John from Dryaxis. Is today Labor Day? It is. Yes. Once again, Grant is affected by a holiday or something. <laughs> He's out laboring. Yeah, that's what Labor Day is all about. You have to work extra hard. Yes. yes. That's what I did today. What yeah. did you do today? Me? Yes. Um, just chop stuff. Um, we're down a person today, so I had to be the the bridge to make sure things were done. Yeah. Nice. That was a the little bit of everything. Up. Good. Um, lane is running great. Everything is running really well. So yeah, that's good. Uh huh. I finally dialed in the lathe to hold a couple tenths reliably. Nice. Did you do anything different or you just kind of figured out how it moves? Um, I just haven't let it cool down since, uh, <laughs> since getting it dialed. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm, well, I'm going to pick up a, run. they are right. So I'm going to pick up an aquarium pump heater or whatever Saunders uses to keep the coolant warm. Yeah. Um, other Is than it? that. Yeah. <clears throat> so like, do you feel like, uh, you're keeping up with how much hardware you need? Yes. Yep. As of this week, I'm officially making next week's hardware. And so I can start doing larger batches. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Because I might still consider maybe wanting some at some point. Yeah, definitely. Um, probably another week or two, and we'll have some decent inventory built up. So that is good. Uh, I was trying to ask the other day, do you guys have like a special label maker for printing labels for uh, shipping? Oh, yes. I just have a little, uh, it's just like a four by six thermal printer that prints onto uh, like sticky labels, like uh, stickers. Same. Like, a, I think the one I have is like a Rolo printer, but there's a bunch of ones on Amazon, yeah. I think. I think mine's also a Rolo. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It's like 120 bucks or something. Yeah, they're yeah. not that cheap, honestly, for what they are, but uh, uh-huh. I think they're worth it, honestly, oh, with, a good, with a good shipping service combined. Well, I'm trying to uh, duplicate Pearson's tool tags, um, which at first I was confused about. So I got I got the little plastic things you clip onto Cat 40s. I got I 3D printed little holders uh, for all of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he uses a label maker uh, with a little thing you can download. But the label maker he like did an Amazon affiliate link for. There's like three versions, and the like default one's like five hundred dollars, and so. uh, I don't know what you like really need, but it'd be nice to get a label print. Like I have some label makers, but they're the kind that are just like strips with like, mm-hmm. I don't think it's heat activated. So I don't know if there's like ink in them or something, uh, but getting a label maker where I could use it for multiple sizes is what I'm interested in. And I don't know if there's ones where you could do shipping labels and like smaller stuff. So at least for me, I have one, the four by six to do shipping labels. Cause that's like the standard shipping label size. All the carriers use like four a format six. that fits. Yeah. yeah. Four by six. So I, it might be worthwhile to get one that's dedicated to that. And then I have like brother makes a label maker called a P touch or whatever. Very good name. Um, and the one I have, I missed the newest version by like a month. And I would totally get the new version. I think it's like wireless or Bluetooth because that would be like a big time saver. But it is like a label printer with a keyboard and it takes 
I don't know what kind of rolls they are, but you can get like half inch thick or wide. No, yeah, I, I, I think that might be what I have. I have, uh, it's like you put little cassette tapes in it and it has like a, a big keyboard. Yeah. Um, so if you get it, I think it is from brother. Yeah. If you get the newer one, like mine still, you can use the editor on the, on a PC, which works pretty good, but the newer one works even better because you can just set the label printer up somewhere in the room and then you actually can send labels to it from your PC and then That's you can cool. add actual like more stuff that doing the labels on the actual printer itself is fine enough for like a couple labels. But if you want to do like an entire toolbox drawer or something, it's kind of tedious to type on the really mushy like buttons. It's got which just, yeah, yeah the, the one I have, it's like, I probably got it, you know, eight years ago or something. And, and I do like it for like labeling drawers or something, mm-hmm. but if I want to do this tool tag thing, I need something that's like more square and you could write on it. Cause it's like the Pearson's template is just like, it has uh like, you know, gauge length or something or tool number. And it just has like a blank that you'd like by hand, write, Yeah. You know, stuff on. Um, and that's kind of what I want to do. So I, I think I need like a different shape and I don't think the labels I have, you can write on. Hmm. Yeah. Dale, and use any labels? Uh, so we don't have any like actual label maker for like labeling things. Mm-hmm. Um, funny enough though, Martin did bring in his personal one that he had um, to label a few things for their shop. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll probably end up buying one, but uh, yeah, right now it's just the four by six thermal one for printing out uh, shipping labels. Yeah. I found like it's helpful for some things, but you can definitely overdo it. <laughs> That's yes, definitely. wasting a lot of time. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I've I've been there. I yeah. uh yeah, so I'm like just now uh like you know started enough different kind of projects and ideas and tests that I've I've like barely passed over 31 tools for the Haas. Okay. And so now I'm like, you know, it's not that big a deal. It's not like I have a bunch of different machines and stuff, but I want to make sure like like right now it's hard for me to know what tools are in the machine, you know, like some stuff I could have fully disassembled the whole tool holder and everything. So it's just gone and some stuff maybe, uh, you know, it's in there and I just forgot. And so, and so I just like want to have, you know, some labels on some tools so I can just be like, these are the titanium tools. Don't use it for anything else. And then like, you know, have the other ones like at the machine in a little 3d printed thing. So you know, which ones are in the machine. Right. Uh, so I'll work on that. Nice. So you have but more I, tool holders than what fits in the halls right now? Yeah, like I probably have like 35 or something. Okay. Uh, I, I just have like a couple extra because I uh, am working on a, a, like like just, just some of the like Cat 20s or sorry, uh, ER 20s I uh, decided to go to a different gauge length and so I'm kind of like trying to shuffle through which tools I want and what and uh, yeah. Yeah. if I need uh, certain tools for different materials. Right. Yeah. yeah, I'd do that with the tags and then the tool numbers on the tags and then they're like specified for the material and it sits outside the machine Yeah, and that works pretty good for seeing what's in the mill, but you definitely have to be pretty on top of it. Otherwise, stuff gets uh, mixed up pretty fast. Oh, I bet. 
Yeah, I could do like the color coding system I had with the weird uh, rubber band things I had on the Tormach, and that will work for the ER20 holders that are like a 2.5 gauge length or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's nice, but like the the band definitely does move like at 15,000 RPM. <laughs> yep. And I so, um... Yeah. I don't know how long the solution will really last. Like on on my tag, so it just lives with the tool holder when it gets pulled out of the machine. And they, I just put like colored dots because you can buy cheap colored stickers, like multicolors or whatever. Yeah, and I've tried nail just, polish as well. Yeah, it, the stickers are so cheap that, and you can see them from a distance that, I don't know, it's just worth it. So like the tag will say, whatever the tool is, the tool number that tool number matches like the fusion library, whatever. And then it says like material steel and it'll have like a red dot on it. So that's just for steel. And then like titanium will have a purple or a pink dot on it. So like if you just am set and setting up like a job that switches from steel to titanium and you just look down the list and you see a red dot, then you know that, Oh, that's the wrong tool. Like immediately kind of like that. So, so that's, I definitely think the colored stickers thing is it's super cheap to do that. And if it doesn't work, you know, no. So are the stickers on the actual tool holder or just the tool tag on the tag and the tool, whenever the tool holder is out of the machine, like no matter what doing tool, like you're changing a tool or something, the tag comes out of the little slot or whatever that sits on the side of the mill. That slot has the actual, uh, tool number. So it's like one through 30. So in it's, this is, probably going to be really hard to follow if you're just listening but like for instance tool 12 is like a one-eighth ball like bull nose end mill so in fusion there's a library and it's just like my library right a universal library so tool 12 is always this bull nose so what i do is oh i'm making a new job whatever go into the library you pull tool 12 from this master library and anyone who knows fusion knows that that then creates a document library that is specifically tied to that document. Yep. If it's going to go in spot like 10 in the machine, then in the document library, it's tool number changes to 10, but it is still labeled as tool 12, like on the tool tag. So you take tool 12 and you put the tool tag in spot 10, which is like on the outside of the mill kind of thing. And each spot is labeled one through 30. And then that way, when I look at it and I go, where's tool 12, like, you know, from the fusion library, it's in spot like tool 10 in the mill. And that's worked pretty good, but I don't know how you did like make it work for hundreds of tool holders, but Yeah, all all my tools have unique uh, tool numbers that stay consistent through Fusion libraries and through the machine because, you know, even though there's only 32 uh, or 31 spots, uh, I'll make an eighth-inch drill tool 125 or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I do like about having something that actually is a mark on the tool holder of some kind or a color on the tool holder is... Because you can make mistakes like uh, infusion or or whatever, and so I like to be like a ten thirty two hole is is uh you know the drill's yellow and the tap is also yellow. So if I 
watching the machine and I start seeing the red tab come down instead, I can like feed hold and know I like click the wrong thing in fusion or something. Um, which, you know, I don't know. It's not like the most necessary thing, but it's also cause I make videos super helpful having the colors because I could just tell my editor, like, let's cut down on the red tool. Like, oh, you yeah. know, it's going too long cause he doesn't know that much about machining. And so me being like, no, not that quarter inch tool, this quarter, the ball quarter, you know, instead of having to talk about that type of thing, I could just be like the red tool, which is nice. Yep. Because you mean your editor tool. isn't a machinist? What? Yeah. Because the tool holder would have the color on it. Yeah, which which works right. for the Tormach, but not as much now. But it's it's not that big a deal. It's uh it's just I think it is nice when you can try to keep the tools as visually different as possible. Because especially with like drills that are similar sizes, you know, because instead of having to like constantly just keep walking up to stuff with, with calipers being like, was this the right drill? Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, yep. you just yep. know like, Oh, the blue drill is always this size. Um, but yeah, I, uh, uh, unless you guys really wanted to jump into something else, I, I, uh, I've been working on a different idea for making working in fusion faster that I'm trying out. If you want to hear about oh, it, I'm curious. So I often have to, you know, make Pearson palettes. And what I usually do is I like, uh, you know, figure out where different parts are going to go. And then I sketch what geometry I need for a pocket for a pit bull clamp. And then, you know, I cut through and I try to like, you know, pattern the features or whatever to do multiple. That's like a lot of sketching and lots of room for mistakes. And so what I'm trying now is I made a little object that represents the spot for either like a single pit bull or, or two pit bulls, like in opposite directions. And I just use joints to connect these uh, solid objects to my stock material that I've modeled with the part inside. And then I like lay that into the palette and then use a combined cut to, uh, you know, cut away that pocket area. And then I can use, because it's derived, don't, if you do like a, it's, this won't work if you insert the whole file, you have to do a derive, but then you can do remove component. So it's not cluttering up a bunch of objects in the, you know, in your list of objects. Does that make any sense? That makes it, that makes perfect sense. And I actually really, really like that idea. And so I, and I even made like, I modeled little like Mickey mouse corners that you could yeah. attach. And so like, you can just like stick the stuff you need to the part and then drop it on the palette and then like pattern a bunch of shapes. Cause like also like it really sucks trying to pattern, like, you know, you can pattern sh uh, bodies, you can pattern, pattern components, you can pattern uh, faces, you can pattern features. And like, I've tried all these different methods and like trying to pattern features or faces to like, you know, make the same pocket thing over and over can be like so clunky or mess up or whatever. And so patterning instead these objects and then you just cut them away is like way better or yeah. more, more reliable, I feel like. Right. Uh, yeah, I really like that. Um, I've got I've definitely found a good workflow for for patterning faces, but it's really tedious having to select every face. Yeah. Um, so, I really like that idea. 
Yeah, I, I think I'm going to do another Fusion video eventually on, on how I do machining. But I've only just started this idea like, you know, a couple days ago. And uh, I really do like how it came out. Like it took longer because I had to figure out stuff. Like I had to redo it because at first I was dropping the whole like Pitbull file in it instead of a derive of it, which right. means you you can't ever delete that part. It's just always. So now I have like 16 Pitbull pocket things, which is annoying. And so I had to like restart a couple times, but you can do it where you can do it in a way that you can have these things just to like quickly cut out the geometry and then remove them. So they're not adding like 50, you know, things to the side okay. of your page. Right. Um, and yeah, I, I think it could end up being like a really good workflow. Hmm. Yeah, no, I really like that. So you just like, you make a new file, you put in what you want to make, you derive that part in, draw like the stock around it then put in a drive of a, a little pit bull pocket or whatever fixture clamp pocket, use a joint to connect it up. And then um, to actually like put stuff on the pallet, I either just like find an edge spot and like go off of that, or I'll do a sketch and you can like just make a crosshair or a circle or something where you want stuff. And then you can use uh you can use joints with sketch geometry as well. Okay. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think that's something uh, maybe listeners might want to consider trying. And then, and then like, uh, um, John told me about the flat tool path, and that's made making fixtures nicer, way faster too. Because I can just like click three D adaptive and set the right settings. It clears out everything automatically how I want, and then I just use flat, and it will do like a nice floor finish on everything too. Which maybe doesn't matter. I feel like I've gotten a little paranoid about how flat, super fast adaptive uh, passes are. So I'm, I've started doing more floor finishing specifically. But maybe you guys have different opinions. So by flat, are you, do you mean cool. horizontal? No, horizontal sucks. Okay. Yeah, I only use it for floor finishing and I always leave wall stock, like radial stock. And I still Wait, don't love the look of, of horizontals. You're still using horizontal? Um, For fixtures, yeah. Have you tried flat? I didn't even know flat existed. Where is that? Flat is like what everyone wanted horizontal to be. Interesting. Is it hiding inside steep and shallow? No, it's its own oh. toolpath. You might have to enable it if you don't see it in preferences. Interesting. Okay. But it, you can also, what's really cool is like a month ago, they did this thing where you can, you can use flat as basically a 3D vertical wall contour generator. Oh, which works super good. So you don't have to, it's like a 3D tool bath for contours without having to actually click anything, which works Does super it work good. Well, in place of like 3D contour? Uh, no, because it can't do, it's only for like in a pocket vertical wall kind of thing, because it can't it, okay. do any sort of sloped walls. Okay. But yeah, so I, I was using 2D pocket, which works pretty fine. It's just you have to click everything. And if you have like an open pocket, it can sometimes get confused. Uh, but flat seems to like you don't click anything. And um, as long as I mean, well, you can make a containment boundary and stuff. So, yeah, I, it just seems to automatically do what you want pretty well. Interesting. <clears throat> what I've also done is uh, the pocket. Not only does it have the right pocket for a pit bull, it has uh, 
a little uh, rod sticking out where the screw hole goes. And I've even added a little chamfer to it so that I, I continuously don't chamfer things as much as I should for threads, you know, to end mm-hmm. the thread nicely. And so now it like, you know, just has this little chamfer that will automatically get cut in as well. So I'll remember to, to cut the right size chamfer. Nice. Yeah, I'm going to play around with that. I really like that. Just having a standard library of models of your like negative geometry for your clamps and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, like so much stuff I already like copy and paste from other things I've already made to speed things up. Okay. And and so, uh, well, like, I, I mean, you probably do it just like, you know, instead of making a new facing pass, you just take some facing pass from something else you've done. Um, typically no i just start over well it depends what it is but often like i just know okay i'm gonna do a facing pass then a 3d adaptive then a flat you know then a contours uh and i like i might even do the contour last because i know i'm gonna have to adjust it with wear Uh, and so i'll just have like i know i'll have those all like grouped up in some other file so i'll just copy those five tool paths and you know put them into the new the new setup in the new file and and uh okay. you know usually have to adjust you know i have to click things for the contour or whatever but then some of them you don't yep. even necessarily need to click anything right i've definitely thought about um because i have a i have a master model of the of the pearson palettes that i yeah. always duplicate for new fixtures and i've definitely thought about creating like a a, a template program in there i just haven't gotten there yet yeah, I, I need to make like a template made to be a template because I I make so many like little tiny tweaks that I get a little scared like oh should I be copying pasting this one? Uh, but you know, yeah, ninety nine percent of the fu- time I don't crash an expensive machine. <laughs> yeah. If you're I mean if you're ever worried about crashing, um, there's a free piece of software called Camodix that I've used a lot. And uh, it's just like a, it's really just a G codes like visualizer. I like yeah. On any new program, I'll I'll dump my my code into it, and then when just I was, look. When I was uh uh using Haas machines before I got this one, I remember you could like simulate the program, and it just like etch sketches the program on the screen. You you can still do that, right? I don't remember how to do that. John would know more. Um, the only, <laughs> it's it's kind of a meme, but the the only control that I've ever truly liked the G code like simulator on is Pathpilot. Yeah, dude, it's actually so good because you can three D rotate around everything and stuff. Yep. I mean, it's uh, still kind of hard to truly see what's going on. You know, if you're worried about hitting some clamp or something, but it's it's right. it's definitely better than a than I remember any Haas machine or whatever uh-huh. simulator. Yeah. What, are you, what are you trying to do? I heard just edge a, edge. Yeah, just just uh, you can simulate the program in the machine, and it just like draws it. Yeah, like oh, a like a G code yeah. plotter. Um, what and, menu and is I that? can't remember how I mostly did it on Haas lathes because, like, you just can program so much by hand that you just you know write up some lathe code and then you just simulate. But I can't, I can't even remember how you simulate stuff anymore. 
There's a button for it. I've used it once and never again. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's never good on like any actual machine control I've used except half pilot for some reason. Yeah. No, like, like I, I don't really ever feel like I need to use it for mill stuff or it would be helpful, but I, I do like that the Tormach, it was just like always part of the window. It was just like always there so you could see like, oh, you know, it's drawn half of it. Cool. Right. I just like it for um like whenever I post out a, a new program or even the same program that's going to run unattended overnight, I'll always throw it through Camodix and all I look for is just to make sure there's no like rogue Z moves that'll just, you know, plunge or something. If it all looks good, then I'll, I'll let it run. Yeah, maybe I should uh, look into that. Usually, like, if I've had a crash, I've said, like, it's because I want to try facing some stock with the jog wheel. <laughs> That's like every crash I've had is just like, let me just jog over, cut this real quick. But I have to do like 30 of them. And so then I should have just made a program and I accidentally forget to hit uh, X. And so I'm going in Z and drill into the part with a face mill or something. It happens. Don't do that. <laughs> just make a program. I haven't you, really you used an the MDI program. Yeah, there's there's also the conversational stuff built in, but I haven't used it at all. I hate conversational programming with a passion. Yeah. Uh, I don't even know what that is if you ask me to define it. Well, you know how there's like pro programs built in? Yeah. Well, there's a similar thing where you could be like, hey, I have a, I have a piece of stock this big. Can you cut it into a square for me? And you just tell it like the size of square you want and stuff. Oh, interesting. Without having to, you could you could machine some stuff without having to use any CAM program. Mazaks are really well known for their conversational. Mill products are really well known for their conversational. It's basically just a, it's a very simplified CAM solution that exists on the control of the machine. Who I always hmm. heard was the best was uh, Herco. Oh yeah, Herco. Herco's they, also super known for their conversational. Yeah, like Actually, if you have a I, job I think they're shop. so known. Mm-hmm. If you have a job shop, you get a Herco and you're just like always having to make different rectangles with holes in it. You could just do it at the machine. Yep. Yeah, I think Hercos are like so known for it that they have two different operating modes. They have a conversational operating mode and an actual like NC file operating mode, from my understanding. Yeah. It's really interesting. So have you guys done anything interesting this week? Uh, let's see. I will be working on something interesting soon. Ooh. Yeah. That that hopefully doesn't entail crashing the lathe. Oh, I think I might know what it could be. But pens. I'm gonna work yeah. on pen prototypes hopefully this weekend. That'd be but, exciting. Yeah. Is there any reason you could crash the lathe? Just new programs, new tools. Gotcha. Longer drills. That's my main concern is uh Right oh, now, yeah. the way the lathe is set up, um, I actually had the install or my apps guy change the the end travel of Z. Mm-hmm. I had him extend it a little bit so I can get the oh, part a little closer to the spindle. Um, and the way my longest drill right now is like fifteen thousandths off the sheet metal. <laughs> oh, no. Um, why is it set that? Why is it set that way from the factory? Not to go closer. Oh, so really weird use case for me um so we have we have a uh the quick grip 
call it system on it, which is which is shorter already. Yep. And then we have um, the way we're doing our our part offs is we actually so we have it's a really nice part off system from Iscard. Um, mm-hmm. It's got a base plate on it, and then it has an L shaped um, bracket that bolts up to it, and then you have your actual parting blade that bolts to that, and then your insert that goes into the blade. So it's like yep. this four part system. But um, you can have it so it's biased either to the left side or the right side of the turret. Mm-hmm. And I have it biased to the right side. That way I can have the parting blade flush with the subspindle. Because we make oh, really, okay. really tiny parts. Which yeah. means we have to, you know, have Z like all the way up to the chuck to make up that like two inch gap. Because the parting blade is all the way to the right side of the turret. Yeah, I've run into the, the exact same problem. Yeah, and so like my longest drill in there right now is like a third the length that I need <laughs> when I'm doing pens. Yeah, I bet. So it's, it's just going to be a lot of like paying a lot of attention to make sure I'm not putting a drill through my sheet metal. Yeah, it's amazing Which how would... close you can yeah. get a parting oh, yeah. blade to something. Right. And my parting blade's sticking. It's like in a tool holder in another tool holder that's been <laughs> shaved down, like ground down to fit yep. around. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's it's ugly. Right. Um. So yeah, I like it's not the end of the world if I you know pop a little hole in my sheet metal, but uh, I would like to not do that, obviously. Yeah. So yeah, just a lot of that. And then I had to buy some, uh, I bought some ER20 collet extenders, like a half inch mm-hmm. shank that goes to, to another ER20 because I have two tools in X, uh, live tools that I need to make reach the spindle. Yep, I have the exact same thing on mine. <laughs> uh-huh. So I need to make sure they're long enough to reach the spindle, but not so long that when it spins the turret for a tool change, it it hits the other side of the sheet metal. Yeah, there's, there's just a lot of clearance that is is just inherently a problem for every turret lathe that exists ever. Yeah, lathes are great, right? It's, it's <laughs> things like this that I actually almost prefer gang tooling. Yeah, I was about to say that. I was like, how did turrets even become the the way to do it? It it's, it seems kind of like a it is kind of know, interesting to me, honestly. Prone to failure system. Right. I don't know, like uh, slant bed lathes are very simple as far as they like are. when but you, you look do, at them. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying why did... slant bed. Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. Like the, the Tormach lathe, you could get it either with the rotating turret or just, you know, a bed of, of tools that all have different positions. Yeah. Um, as far as I know, just for one reason that like at least slant bed and then like the way the turrets are styled is because of like chip evacuation i guess that's, that's what i was thinking you you definitely lose chip evacuation yeah yep. i mean I, I never think about chip evacuation sort right. of because i just like never make anything and yep. it's not big enough chips anyways uh-huh so, but i can definitely I say it's a real consideration Yep. speaking of chip evacuation i i thought for sure i wouldn't want a chip conveyor on the lathe i was like oh we're making Uh-oh. tiny little things out of tiny little bars you don't There's have no one? way. No, I don't. I, I opted out of it. Oh, yeah. See, even I use mine, which I was surprised by because the stringy chips right. are so awful. Yeah. And so, like, I've I've ran a bunch of citizens in the past and they didn't have chip conveyors. And, you know, every few days they would just open it up and scoop the chips out. Yep. Um, I severely underestimated just how many chips I'd be making. So, like, every morning, the first thing is to go pull the chips out of the lid. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. I flood the shop with 30 gallons of coolant like I did yesterday. Is it because oh, they're stringy, yeah. or or are they nice little C's and G's or whatever? Um, they're like, they're not 
they're not fully stringy, but they're also not like, you know, fully chip broken either. I'm actually, <laughs> the inserts I have, I'm uh, I'm taking too big a depth of cut um, for these inserts for the chip breaker to activate. Have you seen uh, Grimsmo's newest video or, or maybe newest where uh, he makes a screw in the Willowman? Oh, he has a, he finally made a Willowman video? He might have a couple, uh, but he makes oh, a screw. Like a, yeah. And I never thought about, I mean, it's obvious, but I never thought about how if you have like a a mill turn setup like that where where the spindle is the turning tools, it means you could have uh, the tool flip over. So you could have like a tool that's, you know, biased to go left. You know, you just turn the spindle 180 and now you could do the other side of something. Which is so nice. That's, it's It's so sick. Right. Like, yeah, I have I have two left hand and two right hand turning tools in my lathe because I can't just flip them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so he he used a, a parting tool to like mostly rough out his example part yep. again. So you get smaller chips and uh, and then he, you know, one tool comes, finishes up and then it flips 180 and then does the, the backside. Uh-huh. Super nice. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah they're so, so expensive. Willemans. Right. Dude, lathes just in general, if it can turn apart, it's like immediately more expensive than a mill. Yeah. Which is a little bit odd to me. I mean, it depends what you're doing. Like, I made a ton of parts that got used that were, you know, it was on a clapped out crappy manual lathe. And it's still really efficient. Well, but like, I'm thinking like, um, like like entry level cost for for a good turret lathe. Like I, guess without, you, like, I mean, if you have to have the y axis, if you have to have the sub spindle, you know all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think even without sub, sub, I think even a two axis like like non sub spindle like Duson, like entry level, is probably still around eighty or ninety thousand. I think it it is crazy because like. It also even the turret you'd think is a easier system to design than a a tool holder system for a mill, you know. I don't know. Um, I mean, it's impressive how repeatable they are positionally, like when you do a tool change. So I don't know. Yeah, I bet John knows. He's been a lathe tech recently. <laughs> I have no idea. I hate lathes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't want to say I, I don't want to mine anymore. <laughs> Right. I always say I hate them, but then when I'm actually running them and setting them up and doing weird stuff on them, I'm, I'm like, yeah, okay, I like lathes. There's yeah, some they... magic to them, but that also makes them scary. Right. Yeah. They're cool. Yeah. Kind of. Unrelated That's... to... Oh, go for it. No, go ahead. I was going to say, unrelated to lathes and, I guess, machining, but still related to shop stuff, is uh, we we got a an official QC table put together. Oh, Ooh. yeah, I think you said something about this last week. Oh yeah, yeah, but the, yeah, we didn't podcast last week, right? Well, we, we talked to each other last week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, we officially have a QC station. I bought a boatload of metrology equipment and pins and like really expensive double uh, X class uh, stuff. So like, I think plus twenty millions minus nothing for like their tolerances. Gauge yeah, gauge pins and uh, gauge rings. Did you get stuff for threads? No. Um, so we have a master set of hardware. And that is our, that's our thread gauges. Yeah. Because like, are you, oh, okay, both David. sides. So it, 
shouldn't matter, but it would be crappy if like 10 years down the line, you realize like, oh, we've slowly been drifting and now the old stuff doesn't work with the new stuff. Well, that's why we have our master set of hardware. Yeah. I've thought about getting, and maybe I will, but I don't know. How are you like labeling or putting the master hardware to the side so you don't mix them up with like live hardware? Uh, we we have them in. Uh, I took an old an old end mill holder and I labeled it master hardware. And so we have one T fifteen bit, one pivot, and and one screw and one bushing, and they just stay in there. So if somebody drops them next to like the actual production stuff, <laughs> will they get confused? I just yeah, I want to know. Absolutely, they will. Because uh, <laughs> just make a master, but instead of like making it have a normal head, make it have a head that's like five times too long. Could put nail polish on it. Yeah, maybe we'll just um or paint pen. That yeah, we could do that. We could get them black oxided. Maybe I mean I could just throw them in our temper oven as well and get them brown. Yeah, I don't know then. that. <laughs> it might might grow or something. Yeah. Maybe I mean, if we're only doing like six hundred degrees, turns into an oval. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, we'll we'll paint it or something. But yeah, we should definitely do that to make it um separate from the rest of the hardware and i mean yeah, eventually it, i should just buy 664 go no goes but yeah it's i definitely really want a dedicated uh assembly or checking table because having yes. all the knives and parts on the machining table is mm-hmm. uh annoying sometimes yep yeah so oh, dude it's it's really nice so, like the last the last couple of weeks we really started going hard into uh daily scheduling for everyone so everyone knows what needs to be done when, um, which helps a lot. Uh, parts tracking is something we're looking into now. And then the QC table. So like all of our parts go through QC three times before being shipped out the door. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, yeah been, sounds, uh, it's been really, cool. really nice. Yeah. How do you track the three people check the QC? You guys like sign something or you just hand it to the next guy kind of thing? Uh, currently, no. So we do have, um, we're still working on creating actual checking processes and what happens if something's bad versus if something's good. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now, it's just, uh, it's me, Martin, our engineer, and Jacob, our machinist. Uh, we each have our own separate days where we're in charge of the QC table. And if they're good parts, they just get dispersed into the assembly area. If they're bad parts, they get set aside for review later. That's our current process. Mm-hmm. And we're still working on the actual, like, writing up the documentation for proper tolerances, but we have all the check pins and whatnot, at least. So it's a work in progress for sure. So if somebody's, like, assembling something and they, like, assemble, try to assemble two knives and, like, let's say both the handles are bad on both of them, Mm -hmm. does that cause you guys to stop and figure out why? Or, like, what's the actual amount of bad parts you guys will actually stop and look at something? Like, check things? We... We haven't really ever had a, a like large scale batch issue with anything yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and typically if it's something, it's like something really small, like um, every so often, and I fixed it now in, in, in the brother, but on one of our knives, we have pivots that go in the end as weights. Um, mm-hmm. That tool would wear out and then that pivot hole is small and now the weight doesn't fit. And, you know, sometimes it's a couple days of production before it's caught. Um, and like in a case like that, I just purchased a reamer and we reamed it out by hand to you know make it work. But gotcha. I guess it's inherently not much of a problem for us because we do we do kind of one piece flow and they go right into 
assembly like the next day. So if there is an issue, then we we can catch it like, you know, same day. We don't, you know, we didn't do 500 of these parts at once and then release them to assembly. Yeah. Yep. I was just curious. I don't know if that really answered the question or not, but... No, it does. I've just, like, obviously me, not not big enough size-wise, but it's something I kind of am curious about, how people handle, especially bigger companies, when you know, like, hey, we have to make this amount of volume, this amount right. of inventory per week. Like, what's their... You know, how long forward can they go and uh, be like, hey, we these that were made a week ago and we've been making bad parts for a week kind of thing. It's <laughs> yep. kind of what I'm talking about. I got I guess. It, yep. yeah. yeah. So like we're we're going to be probably going more into a batch batch style manufacturing here sooner than later. Mm-hmm. As we get more and more efficient, um, we can start, you know, doing larger and larger batches. Um, right. But uh, I mean, the first line of defense is having proper documents and processes at the machine. So parts get checked every run. Yeah. That's kind of like the first line of defense, which we're also working on. Uh, our engineers working on, like, in-process check documentation and and drawings and anything we would need to do that, like fixtures or check pins at every machine. Yeah, yeah. I really like yep. uh, Saunders put up a video a little while ago, like a shop update, where he showed like for different products, there's a little bin that mm-hmm. like has everything you need for that product, like. Yeah. You know, maybe what you should measure, no go gauges, mm-hmm. uh, maybe what the stock looks like, or maybe he even like 3D printed a bin that like if the stock you have doesn't fit in the bin, it shouldn't be put in the fixture type of thing. Okay. Or, or something like that. And then like uh example part, uh just like everything you could possibly like need yep. to like make the part and, and not have it yeah. mess up. Yep. I worked at a um at an aerospace job shop many years ago now and they had this big long like room of shelves it was like a hallway of like like three or four hallways of shelves and on those shelves were were boxes and in those boxes were different like everything you need for any specific recurring job that comes through if it has custom tools the tools go in there Uh, all the setup sheets um fixtures all that stuff would stay in that box on that you know shelf yeah, I, I think I talked about making Codbot cards for my end mills uh, mm-hmm. a few episodes ago. Yes, yep. And I have that for stock now as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's, I don't know, that's my QC rant or process so far. It has a lot to be improved upon, but we are working on it actively, so. Yeah, you can't do it overnight anyways, that would be... Right. That would be cheating if you could. <laughs> yeah, you know what? So, like, we're really good at not shipping out bad products. Mm-hmm. We have like, like a ninety-nine point like nine percent good rate to our customers. Um, and but one day, a couple weeks ago, there was one one customer received a product and it had bind, and like that moment, I shut everything down. It was like, okay, QC time, go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. So we all scrambled to get the QC table up and start working on processes for it. It's probably a good way to do it because, you know, like, oh, we could always do it tomorrow or next week type thing. But mm-hmm. yep. yeah, it's, yeah, it's... I mean, I think like all this stuff, like you, you, uh, you had quality control, of course, because you were making quality products. But it's like, I think such a big thing is just like getting stuff out of your head, like. 
you know, arguably, arguably me and John like don't need some of this stuff, but just like being like, okay, I'm just going to put these, you know, no gate, no go, go gauges here, you know, so I don't have to like go look through all the pins again, you know, right. stuff like that, where you like can take the amount of things you have to remember to, you know, take mm-hmm. the amount of things that you have to like look out for and just, just make them automatic. So you don't have to keep thinking about it. So you can think about the important stuff. Like, I think that's huge. Right. And I mean, it was the main issue was um, I used to QC every single knife that left our doors up until very recently. Yeah. Um, and that's just not sustainable for me when I have so many other things I need to do. So I started, you know, passing off QC to other people, um, but without really having the proper, like, you know, what you need to check other than like the basics. Um, and then, you know, some things started getting mis- missed here and there, which is what spawned the whole thing, basically. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think, I think it's hard. Like, so much is so subjective, and so like the easy stuff you can, uh, you can just use pins or whatever. But I think, right. I think you were talking about like maybe wanting to try to make something that could test if the tune is good. Yeah. So we actually, Martin, our engineer, he he has it designed and is basically just waiting for me to give him a budget to purchase it, like all the things we need. Um. But even then, we're still not entirely confident if we like because we want to be able to put into measurements like what is a good tune. Yeah. And like it's 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 so hard to. What is it? Subjectify? No, ob- objectify it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, you need like uh, some kind of uh, electromagnet and like if this many volts can lift a handle up that it's the right amount of force or something like well, how Martin's they solution. Uh, made the, the, the kilogram an official number. Oh, that is. Oh yeah. Don't they have like, isn't there some facility with a, a super precise one ton master? I don't know about a ton, but the kilogram for a long time was like the only, uh, measurement that was not connected to like a physical, you know, nature of the universe type thing and so okay uh for a while they didn't know what to do or or i guess that's not the right way to put it but th- they just tried to make as perfect of weight as possible and it, eventually the like they just tried to make a uh perfectly spherical like crystal of silicon i think with okay. the idea that it would have they could fix avogadro's number which avogadro's number is just a number of atoms so they're okay. they're basically trying to like count atoms. And I you think know. that's like they made a really great ball. <laughs> but I okay. think ultimately what they ended up doing is like I was saying is instead of using that uh and just like saying this is that many atoms, this is the Avogadro's number. Instead I think they uh used an electromagnet and basically said like this much repulsion force equals a kilogram or something like that. Interesting. Um, but I, I might be wrong. So so now every unit of measurement can be tied to just like yep. a natural constant of the universe instead of something man-made like right. a ruler. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, that detour over. John, were you saying something? Sorry, I was reading about the international prototype of the kilogram. Oh. Which apparently was updated in 2019. Like a oh, couple really? SI units were. Yeah, this was this was kind of recent. Yeah. 
Very interesting. This Wikipedia article is not giving me a good one one sentence definition of it. <laughs> Explaining what it's made from and out of. Oh. Yep. Uh, anyways, I've been doing stuff. Yeah, you have. The headstock on the lathe was pretty far out. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I needed pivots, so I was like, okay, I'm gonna actually level the thing. Yep. And get the twist out of it, now that I kind of know how to do that. Right. I did that, and I was checking. When I originally got it, I could not get tools or drills to not snap from not cutting on center. So oh. I ended up making a bunch of tool holders that you could adjust their center line position with Yo. like adjustment screws. So that was a fun waste of time. It still yeah, works. Yeah, but I just didn't know how to align the entire lathe. So I kind of gave up after trying to align the turret. And I was okay. like, I don't understand what's going on. So the headstock has been out as far as it has been until I actually fixed it today. But it was yep. out. Oh, what was it? It was it was a lot. It was like <laughs> over six inches. It was eight thou had an eight thou. Yeah, it was yeah, yeah, it was like eight thou, eight tenths or something. I remember that in your story. Yeah. And I was like, oh finally, something actually I can justify fixing. <laughs> right. Just being like, it's two tenths over six inches, it's not good enough. Yup. Um, so I learned how to do that, and the usual thing is so as far as I understand, the headstock is the actual thing the spindle is attached to, the casting. And when you align the headstock, I guess you're aligning the parallelness of the spindle face to Z, I think. Okay. Or X. Yep. Um, so basically what most people say is chuck up a pretty thick piece of stock and then take a nice skim cut, clean the whole thing up and then measure the front of it to the back of it. Right. And if the front measures different from the back, then you have taper. And then if like the back measures less than the front or the back measures more than the front, that's the, that taper is what you would use to correct. Like the spindle face needs to go up or down, like nod up or down kind of thing. So depending on your lathe headstock and your model and a whole bunch of other stuff, Sometimes they have adjustment screws. You can loosen all the bolts and then adjust it by just turning, you know, essentially cam bolts almost yep. or just bolts to move the thing. Well, mine doesn't, it has one of these adjustment pads like on the back upper left corner. And it's not really the upper left corner because it's a slant bed. So actually the spindle, it gets a little confusing, but the spindle sits at a 45 degree, like the where it's mounted to. Because right. right. the wedge or whatever, the actual turret is also on a 45. So it's mm-hmm. it's in the same plane as the turret. And to make things more confusing, some lathes, the turret is at a 45, but the spindle is actually parallel ah. to the ground. Yeah, which makes it, as far as I understand, kind of dumb. <laughs> like, right. defeats the purpose of some of the design aspects, but I'm sure there's a good reason. But anyways, well, I'm missing this pad. What's up, David? Well, just like, I mean, you probably know this, but like they uh, they put stuff diagonally because you can uh, increase the distance between the linear rails or ways or whatever, mm-hmm. which the further distance, the more rigid it's going to be, but it takes up more space. And so by making it diagonal, you are adding rigidity without making more floor space. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, also shape evacuation. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good real main reason. Sounds for logical it. to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you gain a lot of X travel. Um, yeah. But basically in my very simple mind, it can make things very confusing because I'm like, no, wait, we're on a 45. If you just <laughs> yeah. tilt your frame of reference up 45, it makes it a little easier. But yep. basically, I only had a two-inch piece of stainless, <laughs> two-inch oh. piece of round bar stainless. And so for like a couple hours, actually, I could not figure out what I needed to adjust to get this thing not to cut the taper the way it was. And I think it was a negative taper towards the spindle. So basically upwards. Yeah. And the issue is, I don't know if I'm missing or it just never came with one of the other adjustment pads, but the manual says there's supposed to be two on the top. There's only one. So you end up having this back left adjustment pad that needs to be moved. And if you had the front one, it would make things really easy. So you snug up or like loosen these bolts, you tighten the adjustment bolt and the turret move, I mean, this, the headstock moves in a predictable uh, way, but you can't pivot it because you're missing this other adjustment pad. So I ended up having to kind of get lucky, essentially, and tighten it up and then dr- loosen it, like slide the headstock down slowly until it was the correct non-taperedness. And the piece of stainless ended up not working at all. So I had to settle on a piece of brass that I had, a small piece of brass that I could only stick out three inches. Otherwise, it would chatter, obviously. Okay. Yep. And the problem is the shorter distance you go, the more painful getting the taper out is because your right. frame of reference is now getting tighter and tighter. Yep. So I ended up banging my head against the wall for a couple more hours and eventually got it to read zero at the front, zero at the back over three inches and i was like okay that's probably good enough right and the spec on the in the manual is pretty tight actually it's it's six tenths over 10 inches which oh, wow. yeah for some other like at least looking on some forums and stuff that seems to be a pretty tight thing and i had to remind myself a couple times i'm like okay you're just making parts that are like a quarter inch long don't get crazy <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yep. So, so yeah it was it was cool uh the lathe it's it's actually designed very well as far as working uh, on it, every part is very accessible, like sheet metal wise. So it's yeah. it's not a pain to work on. I just don't know what I'm doing. So it can be kind of mm-hmm. frustrating spending time like, am I doing it the correct way? So right. that's, yep. yep. So that's lined yep. up. And nice. I had a I had a bunch of like little problems getting in the way, like the tool turret kept alarming out because if you tool change and you call the tool change wrong, it sits there and then times out and then it actually basically alarms the entire turret out so you have to do this like great process where you change like one of the keep relays to a different value which lets you unlock it and then you have to realign it and i had to do that like four times it was just because you were calling the tool room there yeah and it weird yeah and then i have like the the z over travel uh limit switch is going out so you have to sit there and jog it forward like three inches every time you restart it and then like keep clicking it and hoping that this time the contact wants to work. (laughs) It's just like a lot of this little stuff to deal with on top of trying to get it aligned. So yeah, but 
the turrets okay. tomorrow or at some point, like actually adjusting that. And then the sub spindle is at some other point. But, but <laughs> okay. yeah, it, I mean, all your time. critical stuff is basically done on on the main spindle, right? The sub is just for parting off and facing the backsides. Yeah, the only thing, the pivots, the thickness of the pivot head. It's not oh, critical, right. but it needs flush. to be. Yeah, it needs to be within three thou, basically. And okay. That can be. That can be. It's it's one hundred percent doable. It's yes. just one of those things that it takes a little bit to dial in, so you end up mm-hmm. spending quite a bit of time trying to dial it in. Right. But once it's yeah, once it's running, that lathe works pretty good, honestly. Nice. Yeah, I've been blown away by the um the length accuracy when I like on mine. So when yeah. I like our bushings are a great example. Yeah. Um, you know, we make the front side come up, grab it, hard it off, and then do the back side. Um and we have a ideally like a like a plus one tenth minus nothing tolerance that I want to keep, and it does it like really well. That sounds crazy. But uh yes. yeah. <laughs> like I can yeah, like I can comp one tenth on that on that back side facing tool and I'll get one tenth longer or shorter. Yeah, that's that's wild. Yep. Our actual tolerance is more open than that, but we we like to have our we since we're making our bushings now, we started organizing our bushings by one tenth increment so we can just grab the right bushing size we need for our blades. Yeah. And nice. so yeah, every so many parts I have it change the offset for that tool a little bit so we have varying length bushings every run. Yeah. Yeah, those yeah. those dead length chucks are pretty amazing, honestly. I'm really yeah. impressed with them. Um, yeah, I was having yeah, an issue that's... though uh, with because our bushings have a hole in it. So and we put the hole in on off one, and then we grab it and part it off, and now there's a hole through it leading into the sub spindle. Yep. Um, when we were parting it off, it 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 pushes chips through that hole into the actual sub spindle, like in the collet assembly, uh... and then it would start building up chips in there, and then it would get between the collet and the and like the clamping face, and it would start clamping it at an angle, and then we'd have like off parallel bushings and like weird non repeatability issues. Yep. Damn. Um, so then I, yep. Then I found out that it has through sub spindle coolant, which is super convenient. Um, mm-hmm. ah. And then, then I found out that the solenoid that actuates it was bad on it, so that had to be replaced. Oh. Yep. I remember you yep. telling us that. Yeah. All that. Yep. But yeah, now it's working great, and um, there's always coolant coming out of the sub spindle, and it's always purging, or it won't let. It's not. Is that what it's usually used for? Just like people. Honestly, I have no idea. Like when I first heard that it had through subspindle coolant, my first thought was, why the hell would that ever exist? <laughs> they just are putting it random places. Who knows? Right. But like now it's it's like I can't make these bushings without it now. Funny enough. So like can it's it like, useful for me. Besides like keeping chips out, can it use can it be used to like like can it get on the outside of the part when it's cutting to like no, keep it loose? Not really. Not really, unless you like have a very special collet that you specifically drilled holes in. Because like if you have a part in there clamped up and there's no hole through the center of it, um, basically no coolant comes out. Yeah, interesting. It's pretty well sealed. Huh. Um, on any that does, like it, it, it'll leak around like the outside of the collet. Um, and then like when you're spinning, it just flies away from your part. So like I really don't know what it would be useful for. Yeah, I guess like, it's it's flush. probably used to try to keep the collet clean. I guess, right? So glad I have it because it's very useful, but Huh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you didn't have it, just think about it. you couldn't even get through one bar. The thing would get clogged up, I'm sure. So Oh I mean, no, I mean, yeah, it would get clogged up in uh like I noticed it within like ten parts. I started getting bushings that would vary like vary in length by like five tenths 
it'd be out of parallel by like six tenths, and then I have one random bushing that's like two thou shorter. I'm like, what? What's going on? Yep. Uh huh. Yeah. I think I gotta call it there. If uh, unless you guys have something urgent, you need to say. I think I'm pretty good. Everything's going well for you, John. Production is okay. (laughs) When the machines are running. Yep. I'm just trying to get out of my own way. (laughs) Nice. As usual. Uh huh. Yep. Sweet. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah. Thanks. See you next time. Bye.